Hello, and welcome to Innovation Matters, the sustainable innovation podcast brought to you by Lux Research. I'm your host, Anthony Schiavo. I'm joined by Kartik Subramanian and Mike Coleman. Mike, um, I think it's important, you know, that I be given 40% or 25% ownership of this podcast. Otherwise, I think I'm going to take my my podcasting expertise <laughs> outside of the Innovation Matters, uh, <laughs> the Innovation Matters ecosystem. What, what, what do you think about that? Well, our, uh, our, our no doubt our stock price would crater if you left. So I guess I have no choice but to, uh, Innovation matters. to give you whatever you stonks. want. The stonks are going to be <laughs> going to the moon. Now that the uh, the Bitcoin ETF is is legal and public, we can have a an Innovation Matters ETF that just uh, <laughs> maybe captures all the startups that we've we've talked to, all the all the companies we've talked about. It, you know, back in the day when when Lux Research was oh, focused yeah. on nanotechnology, uh, which is you know for those who don't know, when Lux was founded back in two thousand four, that was kind of the main technology area that we we started out focusing on because, you know, it was the hot new area that a lot of, you know, innovation leaders were confused about at the time. So, um, but we actually had for, for, a, for a minute there, a nanotech ETF. Mm-hmm. What was the performance of that ETF, Mike? <laughs> uh, it was fine. <laughs> it, was, it was terrible. I mean, it was not fine. Uh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, a lot of it was large companies that had significant, you know, nanotechnology efforts like DuPont was in it, I think, right? Because they were doing a lot of, you know, stuff with nanomaterials and stuff, things like it that. It was basically was... two things. Because I did go back and, and, and did through this. Um, it was basically <laughs> two things. One was it was a bunch of nanotech startups that were probably never going to succeed in the stock market anyway. And then also the, the it was like... did not perform well. <laughs> it was also like a bunch of companies. And I'm pretty sure the inception of the fund was like 2007. <laughs> like... <laughs> Like every company immediately just like cratered its stock <laughs> price because of the great financial crisis. So it's not like a, it was a particularly like star-crossed ETF as far as uh, ETFs go. If you do want to invest, Anthony, I think uh, there was some chatter that the uranium ETF is going to blow up this year. The uranium ETF. Just Correct. don't, I don't think you want to go uh, use the phrase uranium and blow up in the in the same the same sense, <laughs> correct. Regardless of figuratively, regardless and, of I mean figuratively, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! But yeah, so we're here to talk about the news, and not just the news as it relates to Elon Musk, but uh, technology innovation news, and particularly sustainable technology innovation news. And Kartik, you had flagged up a story um, that you'd wanted to share about deep sea mining. Yeah. You, uh, what's the what's the scoop? What's the lowdown? So um, I think the Norwegian government has now approved eighty to twenty for exploratory mining in the Norwegian Sea. So they want to start deep sea mining, but the big issue was apparently politicians have not ignored several war- several warnings from advocacy groups and scientists that you know this is a bad idea and we don't know what's down there and we're going to affect marine life, and so we shouldn't be proceeding with this. Um, uh, and, and so that was what caught my eye was, you know, I think we've already discussed this before in the past, but why do you think they would want to ignore scientific advice? I mean, it is exploratory, exploratory mining at the end of the day. So I'm sure if they find some problem, they're going to go, you know what, we got to stop, but I don't know why the buzz around, uh, oh, this is like, you know, this is things are about to go down, you know, like 
something terrible is going to happen. That that's the vibe that the scientists are giving out, which surprises me. What do you think? So I'm a little bit of two minds about this undersea mining thing. On one hand, if we could get a really good source, you know, if this would accelerate the sustainable transition, if this would accelerate decarbonization, I think it's pretty undeniable that it's worth doing in that context. Like damage to the ocean from climate change is going to be so, so substantial that I would be willing to accept a pretty significant amount of damage to the seafloor as a collateral for that. But, you know, the basic issue is we don't really know what the opportunity is versus the cost here. Like, we could do a bunch of damage to the seafloor and not accelerate the sustainable transition at all, right? Or we could do not very much damage. So it's just, Mm -hmm. it's hard to make the trade-off, right? I think, honestly, though, a, a little frustrated with the pushback from the scientific community such as it is like i know the science like you're gonna get every opinion whenever you have an issue like this it's just natural that like people are gonna express every different thing but like i think it's pretty clearly worth doing on a pure i I only care about the ocean basis and i think if you expand it to consider some of the other factors at play especially with some of these these minerals right there's a there's a real opportunity mike and you you were making this point to to me or off mike earlier that um, some of the some of the minerals that you could potentially recover from this are pretty valuable to do in a way that doesn't involve like you know really bad labor conditions, right? Yeah, but because it's not just the the trade off of of um, you know the damage to the ocean versus the damage uh, you know from from the mining versus the the risks of climate change. It's also the damage to the ocean versus the damage to the other ecosystems uh, and, and also the like social um, and, you know, human rights impacts also that, that, that comes in from conventional mining, because like in a lot of ways, you know, we're making this energy transition, we're going to get these materials from somewhere. And, you know, right now if cobalt, right, is one of the, one of the elements that that's found in, in these, you know, nodules and, and, and formations that can be gathered from the seashore. Mm-hmm. And right now, you know, that's, that's a pretty problematic material, both on in, environmental grounds and also on, you know, kind of social and, and human, human right, human right one, human rights uh, ones, right. With a lot of the labor abuses and things that can happen in, you know, in, in artisan cobalt mining. So, yeah, I, I'm also a little uncomfortable with the idea of saying like, well, like climate change is bad. So just, you know, full speed ahead and damn the torpedoes and we'll just, uh, you know, n- mm-hmm. without really knowing um, what the impacts uh, of this are. It is it is an area where I, th- I think I'd, I'd like to see us push a little bit faster. I'd like to see us learn more about and understand better what the what the impacts are, but to, to push forward with at least some more of these trials and developments. Because I think this is the thing that I, I didn't really realize until, you know, kind of a, a last year when, when one of our colleagues actually was, was working on some of this stuff for, for a project and talking to, to, to him about it, saying like, hey, you know, actually the, the technology is kind of there for this and, and the economics are not that implausible. It really is the sort of legal and regulatory issues that are the, the main, the main barriers to people at least, at least starting to do this kind of deep sea mining right now. Mm. Maybe my question to both of you, and, and I really don't have much idea about this and I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, is the rate of production from sea-based mining much greater than otherwise? Or is it just the 
amount of resource that we have so the whole quantity because if it's not that different and we are just going to be producing at the rate at which we are right now i would err on the side of caution and do more exploration stuff find out more and then start doing it because otherwise i won't see what's the opportunity as anthony mentioned i think the opportunity is really to shift away from the artisan based mining you know if we're still doing that in 5 to 10 years i think that's a pretty pretty big failure right mm-hmm. um so i think it needs to have a much greater rate you know we need to be able to not just build out this capacity to complement existing demand growth but to really replace some of the existing uh production Mike, I don't know if you have an idea about that, but to me, anything, it really needs to, we really need to accelerate this uh, as quickly as possible in my mind. Yeah, I mean, we really need to to accelerate cleaner technologies for mining. And, you know, again, um, you know, some of our our colleagues, uh, Akshay Chowdhury, uh, Abra Basu, have been doing a a series of, of pieces on, you know, what are the opportunities to clean up nickel mining? What are the opportunities to clean up manganese production? What are the, you know... Uh, copper, a lot of these um, these materials, and it's it's not going to be, you know, I don't think deep sea mining is going to be the sort of single silver bullet solution for replacing all of the problematic, you know, terrestrial production mm-hmm. that we have today. But nothing is right. It's going to need to be a combination, probably, of of different approaches and different technologies, being more efficient about existing scale mining, improving recycling rates. Um, for some minerals, reducing the amount or even finding substitutes that are needed in in batteries or motors or or or, or whatever it is, um, but finding new sources like deep sea um, could, I think, be an important part of the the solution there. Um, and so that's what I'd, I'd like to see more happening. But um, you know, I think there's caution on this though from from not just from the scientists but from industry as well. So again, we were talking about this earlier. I found the article. It's a there's a piece from just in like in November from uh, my favorite magazine, Chemical and Engineering News. Um, that's actually a really nice uh, deep dive on this by uh, Priyanka Runwal. Shout out to uh, the journalist there. Um, but. But it, they mentioned in this piece that that a number of companies, including Google, Philips, Volvo, BMW, have also, you know, been saying we should we should pause on this, or signing letters and industry groups uh, saying that we should should pause on deep sea mining until the impacts are better known. You know, I hope that's you know I imagine that could be compatible, especially for some of these commercial players, you know, like a BMW or whoever who definitely has a vested interest, I think, in this in this working out might, might see that as more, it's like, okay, well, let's do some small pilots, right. And use that to learn a little bit better and then, then make some informed decisions about, about scaling up. Um, I think that's sort of the, the prudent way to, to go with this, to try to balance the risks and opportunities a, a bit rather than, you know, having a, you know, having a total ban on doing anything until we can do a, a large number of academic studies, which could take, which would take a very, very long time. you like, to do allow some pilots on some smaller scales to to get that better sense of the the opportunity versus the risk. All right, and welcome back. We have a guest with us for this segment, Anna Sangren from UniBlue. Uh, for those who don't know Unibloom, Unibloom develops a software that tracks 
how companies can meet their decarbonization goals uh, while also meeting their uh, financial targets. It's a pleasure to meet you, Anna. Welcome. And uh, yeah, uh, could you please introduce yourself to the audience? And uh, maybe also before we get into Unibloom, talk about what got you to Unibloom, right? How's your innovation journey been so far? Hi, very nice to be here. Thank you for hosting me. I was 16 when I started in a fintech company in Stockholm. And I was extremely excited and inspired by two bold entrepreneurs at that time who disrupted the whole financial markets from on- offline to online trading. And I thought one day I want to become those two and start a software company. I didn't do it at that time. I joined them for six, seven years, became a mechanical engineer by background, um, joined um, Unilever and sold ice cream for a few years, went into the founder of the fintech company, sold the company, joined her for four years again, but more from investment point of view, ended up in Siberia with also another startup she had invested in. We were uh, digging for gold. But it was pretty shitty, to be honest. But we raised a lot of money and it was a great business. Geologists, 100 geologists. I flew between Moscow, Siberia and Stockholm and London, uh, trying to convince and got a lot of money in. And we put it on the stock exchange in 2012. Fantastic small company. But you know what happened with Russia. So I left that because I wanted to do more purpose and also more profitable and more healthy growth uh, and lean into that. Ended up with Ben Jerry's. I always loved the ice cream. I loved the story. And I was like, this is the brand I can take the next level up to. Ended up 10 years there. Drew like LGBT rights, um, refugee rights, uh, build new businesses with delivery and e-breeds across the world. We built a 0 to 200 uh, business within Unilever. So becoming an entrepreneur at the first, you know, in a big, big company. Transformed several markets, sold Ben Jerry's to the Italians to the Portuguese, to the Spanish people. They didn't understand who Cookadoo was, but it worked anyway. So we tripled the growth in a few years and also at the same time really drove the triple bottom line. Ended up at Seven Generations, also another American B Corp brand, Unilever bought, fantastic brand, strong uh, number one in US, transformed it, became the number one in in Brazil and uh, Germany uh, in Amazon after one and a half year. Um, and at that time was two, one and a half year ago, still be, you know, I've been an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur the whole life. Also started a bakery. Uh, I've been, uh, you know, started a women's network uh, in the engineering. So kind of always driven by that to starting, changing something. And last year, you know, you just read the headlines over and over again, like the big gap between intention and action in corporates. And at that time, I had to leave uh, Seven Generation and Unilever because Unilever decided to move it just back to US and stop the expansion. And I felt there's so much between that silo decision of climate actions, business decisions. And they're so slow internal action making and decision making and understanding, is it, you know, what kind of decision I need to make to hit those longer term targets and make a change in the world? And at the same time, drive that profit. And how can we do that at the same time? And no one really knows, like, which is the better decision to make? Because the solutions are out there. So I joined Sync Venture. I met my co-founder, Vinit from Bloomberg. He's been a software engineer uh, the last 10 years at Bloomberg. Also wanted to do a change, wanted to do an impact in climate. And we started uh, Unibloom nine months ago. 
All right. Um, speaking of the bakery, I'm sure uh, Anthony would like having some bagels from there. Uh, he's yeah. a bagel guy. Uh, I have I have a fresh batch upstairs, so I'm I'm, I'm taking care of right now, um, which is good, which is good to hear. I think <laughs> I'm sure our listeners will be very very pleased to hear that bagel update. Yeah, but uh, Anthony, I think kicking over to you because you've been with our debate. So for listeners who have been listening to this podcast and have yeah. followed the Lux debate, you know, yeah, Anthony. Yeah, I mean, I think what Dino Bloom is doing is is really interesting because I think there has been a recognition that the trade-offs around sustainability are really important and that the decision-making around sustainability is really challenging. And if you look to the financial sector, you have really, really robust metrics. You have really, really robust data, not just internal to companies and their own performance, but publicly as well about financial performance and all this stuff. But when it comes to sustainability, you don't have that level of visibility. You don't have the level of data and you don't even have a shared understanding of what really matters in terms of the data, right? Like it's one thing to say, oh, we have great data, but some other companies might think, hey, that data is worthless. You know, that doesn't really, that doesn't really matter to the things that are actually important. So I guess on the highest level, can you talk a little bit about Unibloom's approach in sort of navigating, you know, this space where things are so murky right now and how are you sort of thinking about, you know, climate data and how are you thinking about the challenges that your your, your customers are, are bringing to you, given that that's, it's so sort of murky in that yeah. way. I like the word murky. And uh, what I think is very clear is what science says. So it's very clear what, you know, we have a very, very clear roadmap from IPCC. We have a very clear roadmap what science says that we need to halve our emissions to 2030. It's not just about carbon accounting. It's really about the reduction and also about our resource efficiency. So these are the balances like reduction in emissions, reduction in water use, reduction in waste, reduction in packaging or zero packaging. So these are things that like setting up those targets and you, you, you need to know your baseline for sure, but that's kind of, it's, it's a baseline that you calculate, for example, 2019, and then you have that baseline. But what, the, you, you, what we see today is just an overwhelming part of reporting and nice PowerPoints or like which direction you should go in, but it's very, very siloed from the real commercial decisions. And that's where you need to understand, like, how do I take those integrated? And how do I bring those kind of, and I wouldn't say it's too hard, but you need to know the direction as in every normal business before we even spoke about climate. Because Unili, uh, Ben and & Jerry's and Patagonia and a few others has this as a kind of fundamental piece how they were funded, founded on like the triple bottom line, the people, planet and profit. But there are very few now that has that in uh, that as their core purpose. And now every single company is trying to do that from an outside-in perspective, but it has to come from an inside-out. And I think the only way we can get there is really to set bold targets and use science as the direction to get there. One of the things that's that I find really interesting about Unibloom is you're very sort of openly, there's a financial angle to all this, right? Mm. Um, yeah. Whereas a lot of the, the climate data platforms we've begun to explore this space mm. are really about climate data. 
Mm. And I think that's important. You know, you mentioned the fintech background because I think the challenge always comes when people have to make a financial decision, right? It's easy to say, okay, well, what are, what is our footprint and what should our targets be? That's, you know, that's obviously challenging in some sense, but it's pretty straightforward. But the hard part is, okay, how do we actually determine what kind of costs we're willing to bear or investments we're going to make when um, we're thinking about our sustainability initiatives? Mm. Can you talk I guess I'm curious, you know, is this something that you really leave to the the clients to determine their financial metrics or how are you thinking about, you know, putting the 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 financial part and, and modeling, you know, return on investment, right, in the context of sustainability outcomes because it can be so difficult to like understand what not only understand what the impact would be at a baseline but then say okay, what's our actual return on an investment and how do we manage these different mm. projects or approaches? Um, can, can you talk about that element of it? Yeah. A little bit more? First of all, you just need to see two pictures instead of one as the fundamental basic is the, you know, your emission decarbonization pathway to 2030, for example, mm-hmm. but at the same time, see what your investment lies. So that's was where we started. Mm. Let's say three things that like, collaboration so we t- two things that we take as a very very important is to have a collaboration platform collaboration and financial platform that bring the best optimal climate projects to life at the right time was without the collaboration so the sustainability managers and teams need to speak the business language we can't you know let every single one to speak the climate language because it's too complex so what we need to do is to translate and help the sustainability managers to match that language with the procurement innovation team, manufacturing team. So they understand, can I save money or can I grow my revenues? One example was that one customer came to us and like, I'm almost losing McDonald's. Because if I don't shift my feed for my chickens, McDonald's said, we have done the science-based targets. So we need to reduce, where are you going? And it's not what you did before. I want to see your pathway to and a real pathway, not just a high level one. So that's where she started to get back. Like, how do we do that? So we look at the financial return is like, how much do I invest? What is the carbon, you know, reduction, for example? But we also optimize over, you know, waste, water, circularity. So you can see, because it's always, it's not, it's as I think someone started with trade-offs. It's all about trade-offs. The whole life is about trade-offs. And this is particularly about trade-offs. And you just have a set part of budget in your company. And that budget can't just be all shifted to sustainability. But hopefully it's integrated in the coming next you know, 10 years. So fundamentally, like Patagonia and Ben & Jerry's, so it doesn't become a, a debate. But we know it is a debate today. And can we get that as transparent as possible? And then show what you get in return of your climate and resource impact versus your financials. And then one thing on that is that how do we bring that to the commercial side? Can you increase your price to Tesco? Or have you, do you have that conversation with your Tesco sustainability lead and the procurement so you sit in the same room? Yeah. And I wanted to kind of hone in on that that point about trade-offs, right? Because it's something like I'm sure you lived this at, at, at Unilever, right? You could say we're addressing plastic packaging and okay. And, and I think relatedly to this, right, what we're seeing from a lot of our clients is is a kind of a broader concern about sustainability metrics, not just 
you know, kind of the direct greenhouse gas emissions, but looking more and more at scope three and also at other impacts, as you, you know, you alluded to water and land use and things like that. So, you know, you're looking at plastic packaging. Well, you can consider switching to glass, but maybe that addresses your plastic waste uh, issue, but it but it uh, it increases scope three emissions or you can switch to paper, but then you're you're having worries about water and land use Im- impacts of of that. So how, how does your platform kind of it, it, helping people to to manage those those trade offs? Is it just a, a matter of helping to to quantify the relative impacts and they have to decide or like you said, work with our customers to decide which one of those is more important or there there are ways that you're seeing some of your customers start to you know, really be able to tie, you know, okay, my reduction in greenhouse gas emissions is worth this much, but my increase in water usage is is costing me that much and, and really being able to quantify some of those trade-offs. Yeah, so that's what we are starting as we are, you know, a startup, but what we want to quantify and what we already seen is that they have saved one and a half million already in the platform with just 80 projects, 70,000 uh, tons of CO2, and reallocated COPEX of 7.2 million. So with that said, they already started to have this kind of, oh, how does my packaging, if I lower the weight of my packaging, that will also impact my transportation. So it's all linked, interlinked. So like we had another customer and they had a driver to optimize their packaging more to fill up more. And then suddenly they filled up more, get fewer, more package on the same truck. But it also became fewer number of transports. So it became like, but they were not really aware of it from the beginning. But then when it started to kind of, you know, uh, build it in between and understand the bigger impact, like, wow, we both reduced the transportation and other part. So that's where we start to optimize. And we also kind of, with were our uh, intelligent part in in the platform that you can see how much water versus how much waste versus how much emissions on the scope three can I reduce with this, you know, project here? And then how much does that cost or how much can I reduce on that? So that we want to make it the financial and a planet conversation all the time, if it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, how much of the, also the the businesses the interest that you're seeing from customers, how much of that is driven by just regulatory factors as well, right? You talked about, you know, the risk of losing McDonald's as a customer if you don't improve your, you know, some of your your metrics. But there's also, you know, as you mentioned on your website, uh, CSRD reporting requirements in 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 Europe, right? And and just uh, I'm I'm sure there's, I mean, I know from talking to some of these uh, some of our clients, right? There's there's a need for for help and just being able to to quantify the information to be able to comply with, with some of the reporting requirements that are, that are coming out. Yeah. So we see that as a journey, CSRD is a new EU regulations where you bring environmental social together with the financials in one report. That's the first step, like, okay, understanding what we're reporting. We're adding in waste, water, circularity also. There's a lot of consultants on that side who are helping out, but then you need to operationalize this. And you need to bring that in every single day. And that's hard to trust the consultants every day internally. So what we see is that 50,000 companies in Europe, about 250 employees, need to have this in the coming two years. 
and no one is almost there to even you know know half of it. So I would say one thing is reporting, but hopefully the actions, the reporting are the outcomes of the actions. That's where we want to get to. Because if you have done the actions right and set up your targets right, then the reporting would be just you know a week instead of spending you know four months on doing that and collating the past. So yeah, back to that, like what's driving it. One, what we see is that it's customer requirements. Customer asking for low area progress and they are bigger ones. So that's like, I'm losing. I saw Colgate Palmolive losing or have a risk of 30% of the total operational income to 2030 if they don't shift faster. And that's not, that's just one company. Uh, coming back to maybe the consumer side, because you did talk about, you know, the consumer driving this and as a company who's looking at, you know, becoming more sustainable, but also generating revenue at the same time, uh, I would sort of look at it two ways. Uh, and I was curious to hear your perspective on this. So the first thing is when a company introduces a more sustainable product, it's always more expensive than a regular product. So consumers may not want to get that. So how do they find that right balance? I, I I don't think it's just with, you know, scaling up production and saying, oh yeah, we have economies of scale. I really don't think that's that's the argument to be made here. And the second thing to look at it is, do consumers perceive that as plain greenwashing and not adopt it? So mm-hmm. how do they strike that balance? And you what are you seeing? Consumers, like the consumers or the customer, like the companies? The companies perceiving the consumer side. So how do the companies mm-hmm. position yeah, themselves yeah. in such a way yeah. they have a product that appeals to the masses, but is also not seen as greenwashing? Mm-hmm. One thing is that in the long run, we see carbon taxes and carbon, you know, it, it will come at cost internally. And I think that's so important from regulatory perspective. They need to drive that faster. And you need a few companies spoken to have set this internal carbon uh, pricing. Uh, but like, how, how does that? So bad products should be more expensive than good products. Unfortunately, it's the opposite right now. Um, but um, I would say that I thought I think also uh, that is an overconsumption in the world, which means that there is some crappy products that we don't need, which probably are the worst ones. Also, it's pretty harsh to say, but like some ones with palm oil in it, like bad productions, is might be junk food, and doesn't really help. So driving for more affordable products, I I believe that with the new regulations and the new carbon taxes and carbon costs. Uh, and also the energy, like renewable energy coming down in price, you can shift to the same price as the more affordable products. So sustainable products should be affordable. And I think, you know, for example, vegan products from Ben & Jerry's, we started to price that higher than the other ones, but then we did like this, we need to democratize vegan, for example. We need to democratize sustainability. So how do we democratize these by skip a lot of packaging or re-engineering what the products are, but still keep the the essence of the good things in it? And I think everyone has to take a cut in these margins. Like, you know, when I sold Ben Jerry's, I said, like, are you ready, dear big customer retailer in Sweden, to cut off the fair trade? We need to pay the farmers. Or shall we do the dairy that is worse? No. So, you know, like, yes. Do the consumer absorb that? Of course, it's hard. But I think we also can consume a bit less. 
So it's a balance between that. And uh, when prices on energy and all that getting back and it is more scalable with better products, innovations are coming more to, you know, bigger scale, then those prices will also be becoming lower. I want to shift gears maybe a little bit. You know, we have a little bit more time. And I guess I'm curious, so much of what you are doing here is is focused on these consumer-facing companies and these consumer-facing, you know, one step away from these consumer-facing companies. Mm. Have you gotten any interest from much more industrial companies and maybe companies who weren't founded on this, this triple bottom line, right? Mm. I'm thinking, you know, about... Uh, a heavy industry, like a cement player or an ExxonMobil, right? Where they're still pretty far away from someone like Ben and Jerry's. Mm. Have you had any conversations with them or have you noticed anything changing in, in that regard? I have both the forest industry, one of the biggest uh, forest companies in the world, Stora Enso. Uh, they are very interested in our solution. <laughs> so I have a second meeting next week. Um, they're more on the forest side. They are doing a lot of great things. They have committed to science-based targets. So they are on a strong trajectory towards that. Spoken to the car industry with Volvo, for example, they also on the trajectory uh, and looking at like, how do we get to circuit to circularity? How do you know all, all these parts? The whole um, real estate world mm. is a big, like contributed to 40% of the emissions. Of course, I have a few uh, friends from the same cohort and like, you know, make, you know, uh, waste uh, an asset. And of course, you know, you see that how do you turn waste in a real estate company to assets and how do you use second life of that? So, of course, they did start, but like adoption of digitalization, adopting of digital tools, I think it's a crucial thing. To understand more of the flows, to understand more picking up the data and choosing the right things again, so you don't guessing anymore. And some industry and industries are behind on data and digitalization at all. So I think it's like we see a shift of both digitalization and on sustainability, and I think those two go hand in hand to be able to navigate in the new world. Yeah, that was another thing I was curious to ask about. I mean, you mentioned on your on your website, uh, just as I was prepping for this, right, t- talking about companies moving to different business models, more circular business models, th- things like that. And that's often something that digitalization is is really key for for enabling. Um, but that's a hard change to make often for a lot. I mean, in, in many ways, like switching to a, you know, sourcing a more low carbon material or even changing manufacturing processes to improve uh, emissions or things like that can be easier changes to make than actually changing the business model at a, at a company. So what do you see as uh, some of the potential success stories or, or areas where those those kind of alternative business models are, are starting to get some traction? Yeah, I have a good friend and also one business I supported many years ago called Makers Unite from uh, Amsterdam. Uh, and he supported refugees from the beginning uh, to give them a second, like a new good life. Uh, they, so they reinvent. They took the life wests from the sea and made the second life of those together with the refugees. But now, seven years later, he actually have said repair is the new cool. So he got Patagonia, Declaton, and a few other big companies to adopt into more circular 
Like, how do we integrate circuit, you know, circular business practices and kind of offer our customers and consumers to repair and give some, you know, something back to them? So that's where kind of I saw some of these, and now he's scaling up with a few other companies also, big companies, to like repair, recycle, and get also save money on it. And also, you know, you bring it a, a more credible um, brand to your own store, like Patagonia, they already have it. But like Declaton also, I just bought a ping pong table the other day, secondhand from there, because I know they had it. I was like, <laughs> oh, that's there. So, so these are the things that I think you need to, and back market is another example of how you kind of, you know, re recycle those. And we bought that for Unibloom for sure. Um, and just see how, how choices need to be shifted a bit and think a bit differently. I know, Anna, I think we want to just thank you for your time and being willing to jump on and um, discuss this pretty challenging uh, topic, I think, you know. So thanks so much. We really appreciate it. And um, you can, well, a- a- any last uh, message for our, our audience, who's, you know, a lot of, I think, the innovation professionals, the the sustainability professionals who, you know, are, are interested in this kind of thing? Make sure that you bring, you know, switch your conversation to reporting and just complex data to use the conversation or how can we commercialize? How do we bring those kind of initiatives into our everyday decision-making and how do we deploy the capital in the best way to get both shorter and longer term uh, returns uh, for stakeholders, not just shareholders and use digitalization to trust that much better and faster. So you get from 12 months, into a week or minutes of decision making because then we get to hit the 2030 targets innovation matters is a production of lux research the leading sustainable innovation research and advisory firm you can follow this podcast on apple music spotify or wherever you get your podcasts if you want more check out www.luxresearchinc.com blog for all of the latest news opinions, and articles.